You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Good morning, Real Life. How's everybody doing? Good. We are in the middle of a sermon series we're calling One Person at a Time. About every year, I always feel like it's a good idea to kind of go back through and review, uh, renew, what other R words can I use? Um, You get the idea, alliterated wisdom. Um, our vision. Who is it that God's asked us to be and who are we becoming and how do we do that? And so here at Real Life on the Palouse, actually we're a part of a family of churches that are named Real Life kind of all over the Pacific Northwest and we all have this passion for this idea of what does it mean to be a disciple? And so we've asked that question. We have these four words that we believe in so much we painted them on the wall of our lobby. Um, so that's a thing. And uh, and, and, we, and we, want to, we want to preach through those on an annual basis to kind of just remind ourselves, remind, another R word. Okay, never mind. Um, what those look like. So two weeks ago, we talked about the biblical foundation for relationship because, duh. And, and are you guys awake this morning? <laughs> Has second service just stopped laughing altogether? Is that you've just signed off on that? Don't say my jokes aren't funny. Um, And then we have these four words, SCMD we call it, share and connect and minister and disciple. And we want to preach through those. And so last week we talked about share. We talked about what does it mean to share Jesus with the dying world? Part of it is having a story to share and having a testimony. So we got to hear hear a story. We got to talk about why you would share a story and how you share a story and interview about that. It was a good message last week, yes? That's where where we we need to begin there. We need to begin with this idea that Jesus is at work and, and here's what he's doing. And I want to share, we've seen that in a million sermons. We just did that sermon series on Jesus encounters and uh, how many of those stories had a story to share. And so today we want to talk about the idea of connect. And so one of those phrases you'll see painted on our wall out there is this idea that we exist to connect people to God and to each other, to connect people to God and to each other. I want to talk about this idea of connection this morning. I'm going to do it in my typical Marty way. I'm going to make you think that I've forgotten what I'm supposed to be preaching about. And then at the end, we're going to tie it all together and you're going to go, ah, I see what you did there, tricky Marty. All right. So I want to, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about the thing behind the thing that's behind the thing, because no matter what you're talking about in the scriptures, at church, whatever, there's always the thing behind the thing behind the thing. Now in the Christian worldview, we've often talked about the thing behind the thing always being sin. And that's in a lot of ways, very true. And yet there's also a thing behind that, I believe the scriptures tell us, starting all the way back in Genesis chapter one, like there's a reason why we sin. And that's because there's two dominant narratives that lie behind everything that we engage in the world. One narrative is a narrative of fear, fear of all kinds of things. But it's a a narrative, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a view of scarcity. There's not enough. I'm not enough. Uh, I don't have enough. Um, there is not enough to go around. Like whatever it is, uh, it's, it's fear that there's not enough. And so what it does is it leads to a narr- narrative of self-preservation. Like I'm going to take care of me because if I don't, I'm going to end up on the losing end. I'm going to end up on the, the short end of the stick. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not have enough. I'm going to fail. I'm going to not be accepted. I'm going to whatever. So we have all these fears, fears of rejection. And when we live on a narrative based out of fear of anything, insecurities, that's going to lead us to a narrative of self-preservation. And yet the scriptures invite us from the opening pages of Genesis chapter one, 
The scriptures invite us to have a narrative of self-sacrifice, a narrative built on trust. And it starts with this idea of, yeah, of course you're gonna not be enough, and of course you're gonna screw up, and of course you're, but God loves you anyway, amen? Like God made a world, and when he made the world, he stepped back and he thought, that was pretty good. He actually says, very good, that was very good. Um, Like that's where this whole story begins. If I will trust that, we used to say trust the story around here quite a bit. If I will trust that story, well, it sets me free. Because if I'm loved and I'm valued and I'm accepted and nothing I could do could make that change for neither height nor depth, angels nor demons, principalities nor powers, nothing could separate us from the love of God, right? If that's true, well, then I could lay myself down because I don't have anything to lose. Uh, it's already mine. Is that, are you tracking with me? Okay, why is that important? Because all kinds of narratives sneak in and try to disrupt that. Your natural human tendency is to not trust. Your natural human tendency, because there's a part of us that's very animal-like, there's a part of us that's very fight or flight, there's a part of us that wants to live in fear and you're invited to do more. And all throughout history, we have battled this. Well, in Jesus's day, in Jesus's day, there was a new philosophy, a new worldview on the scene. It is a worldview that has lived on to this day. I, 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 I deposit that it may be the greatest threat to the gospel that the world has ever seen. Not in and of itself, but the way that we interact with it. The idea was the idea of Hellenism. Say Hellenism. It was not named after the place with flames and a guy running around in red tights and a pitchfork. It was named after the Greek god Hellas, and that's a whole another story. But this was a Greek philosophy built on one premise, and that was the premise that man was the measure of all things. It was, uh, that, that phrase was spoken by a Greek philosopher named Protagoras. Say Protagoras. I always want to say Pythagoras, but that's the guy who did the math thing. Um, so, so Protagoras said man is the measure of all things. And what that meant for the Greeks was that man was now the standard. Man was the ruler. Man was the, it used to be either God or the gods, whatever world we you held. Everything in the ancient world revolved around our understanding of the gods and what the gods wanted. And usually that was a narrative of fear. If I don't, the gods will blank. This biblical narrative said, yes, revolve it around God, But it's not a narrative built on fear, it's a narrative built on trust and the fact that God's looking for partners. So it's a whole different, but this Hellenism, well, it's just a flashy, glossy new package built around that old narrative of self-preservation. It's just just new window dressing. It looks good, it looks all evolved, like man is the measure of all things, but, but all it really is is another narrative of, and there's not enough to go around. Because if you're the measure of all things, you may may hear, we we may be familiar with some Hellenistic slogans even today. Uh, Somebody was texting me, Brent was texting me, uh, new slogans from today, Um, let's see here, Century 21, uh, real estate for you. Uh, I probably misquoted that. Uh, Burger King's new slogan, we do it the way you do it. Uh, Here's some other ones that I actually had prepared for my slides. Probably dates me a little bit. Have it your way right away. You deserve a break today. Are we preaching yet? Okay. Uh, Make your mornings about, this was on a sign in WSU's campus. I used to walk on the campus to minister to students. I'd go right past the same coffee shop every morning. Big sign they put out there as they opened up the doors. I'd walk out right after they set it up. And a big sign said, make your mornings about and in the coffee mug. 
big letters, you. That's Hellenism. You're, you're now the measure of all things. You are now, and it looks like it's really like, oh, that's not, base, ba- that's not built on fear. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. It's just a flashy new package for that same old fear-based because it says that there's not enough and you have to keep working for you. And it definitely runs against the scriptural narrative of let's work for others. Right? Everybody tracking with me? Okay. It leads to things like a focus, a focus on these things. Leisure, comfort, security, power, fame, wealth, luxury. These things are not bad in and of themselves. Is security a bad thing? No. Is, uh, is leisure a bad thing? It's, how about comfort? Is comfort a bad thing? No, but a focus on these things. A worldview that says there's not enough of these things and so I have to go get more of them. That's a problem. And that narrative runs counter, some would say, to the narrative of the scriptures. Well, this caused a problem in Jesus' day because there were, there were lots of Jewish thinkers, just in, the, just in the world of Judaism, there were different responses to Hellenism. What do you do about this Hellenistic worldview? Well, some people said, I don't do anything. Hellenism is great. Uh, one of those groups was a, groups, uh, was a group that was in charge. They were the Sadducees. Say Sadducees. Now say it in the Hebrew because it's so much more fun. Say Zadukim. They are the ones that came from Zadok. They are descendants of Zadok. They are the, Zad- the Zadoks. The Zadokim. And these Sadducees, they were the seven ruling families that had descended. They were originally known as the Hasmoneans. The seven ruling families that had descended from Zadok, the high priest who had descended from Aaron, Aharon, the high priest. And, and, and they were the ones that were supposed to be. And so they had this God-ordained leadership. Now, throughout, they come back from Babylon, they rebuild Jerusalem, the Greeks are there, it's kind of going, I guess, okay, and then it's not going okay, and the story of Hanukkah, don't worry, you don't have to remember this for a test, and, 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 then, and then they defeat the Greeks in the story of Hanukkah, it's like their Independence Day, and then, and then all of a sudden they, they put the priests in charge, because that's what God always wanted, and everybody's like, yes, and then within 20 years, the Sadducees become completely Hellenistic. Like a century later, Josephus tells us that there were not enough priests to run Sabbath services because they were all at the nude mud wrestling tournament, which would be the same as there not being enough pastors to have church anymore because we're all watching Sunday NFL ticket, okay? Which trust me, I would like to some days, but nevertheless, (laughs) that's the Sadducees, all right? They were leveraging Hellenism for their own benefit because it was giving them security. It was giving them wealth. It was giving them fame. It was giving them lots of leisure. It was giving them, and they were like, this is great. And we're in charge, so hooray. Okay, then there was a group called uh, Herodians. They were from the party of Herod. They were essentially, they would have agreed with the Sadducees, they just weren't priests. So they weren't spiritual leaders. They were just like a lot of you sitting out there, like just normal parishioners. I hate that term, you get the idea. But they would have agreed. They would have been like, yeah, have you had running water? Nobody giggled at that. Okay. Um, have you, have, like, maybe nobody giggled because most of us in this room don't critique the Herodians because we are them. Very, very much so. Like I need to get my iPhone 11 ordered because I haven't yet and I'm already going to be on back order and ah! Like literally that's my story and I do like my iPhone. I have a lot of Herodian in me. Right? And so do so many of you. Anybody like their smartphone? You're, yeah, the rest of you are liars, which is also a problem with Herodians. No, I'm just kidding. 
Yeah, the Herodians are like, yes, I can have my smartphone and I can have God. And I think most of us in the room are going to be like, yeah, I can. Right? Uh, Herodians are going to say, I can have my mosaic floors. Uh, We ought to hear things like granite countertops. And it doesn't get in the way of my worship of God. Like most of us would be like, yes, we're Herodian. Okay? That's one. Like Hellenism, not a bad thing. Okay? Then there's another group. What about the priests? What about the ones who were priests but would, because you know not everybody bought into that corruption. What about the ones that said, this is screwed up? Like, I will not be a part of this. They were known as the Essenes. Some of them kept serving as priests, but most of them stopped. They abandoned their call as priests. They said, this system is so corrupt, God has abandoned it. We're going to go out into the desert, and we're going to start a new movement, a new priesthood, a new community, and we're going to be totally devoted to the text. And when God's ready to start the new world to come, we'll be ready. Those were the Essenes. They started communities like Qumran. You might know Qumran because it's where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. The reason that you know your Bible is accurate is because of the work of the Essenes. Beautiful people, okay? But what about, uh, they're a little crazy. The Essenes were a little crazy, I'm not gonna lie. But they're also beautiful people. I'm a little crazy, but I'm also a beautiful person. (laughs) Then there were two other parties, both that belonged to a larger group called the Hasidim. Say Hasidim. Hasidim means pious ones in the Hebrew. They're the pious ones. They were the ones that looked at the Sadducees and the Herodians and they said, that is absolute compromise. It's idolatry to go worship Hellenism. And I'm not worshiping Hellenism and the the Hasidim said, oh, yes, you are. Yes, you are worshiping that iPhone. I see your face in it 20 hours a day. You get the idea. Any Pharisees in here? Don't raise your hand. Um, you get the idea. And there was a whole group that said, we're going to go up into the Galilee and we're going to start our own villages and our own towns that are going to be totally devoted to following God. No running water. Why? Because running water gives us a false narrative. We're going to go to the well just like we always have. Because stuff happens at the well. Good stuff. Like we have community. We have relationship. So be careful before you throw all the Hasidim under the bus. See, one group, one group believed, not only are we going to go do this, but we're going to fight back, literally. We're going to grab our swords, and we're going to fight back against Hellenism. And God's going to rescue us, just like he did all throughout, they would just say the Hebrew Bible, but all throughout the scriptures, we're going to do it that way. And there was another group called the Pharisees, and they said, we're going to be just as devoted, but we don't think you should use swords. So we're going to be so devoted so devoted that God will come rescue us with whatever swords he wants to use, but they won't be ours. Okay, that's the Pharisees, all right? So let's just do a quick run through. You're like, Marty, why are we doing this? Hold on, okay? First group is Sadducees. What's the positive and the negative of each group? The positive is God does need priests. Like he needs God-ordained leaders. He needs people that will serve in those roles. He needs that. You're tracking with me? Like that's, that's a need in the world. It's not a popular need these days, but it's a need. The problem with the Sadducees was they were completely corrupt. So glad we don't struggle with that anymore. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you guys are waking up. All right. Then the next one is the Herodians. Here's the good news. Almost all of you that are Herodian in this, you liars, you Herodians. That's a joke. Thank you for laughing. The Herodians, here's the good news. You're perfectly placed for God's mission because you know which world God wants to redeem? This one with all of its technology and its iPhones and its movies and its HBO and all, like that's the world that God wants to redeem. Does that make sense? You hear me? The problem is 
is we like that world too much in its unredeemed state. So we give into it. And we have idolatry. All right? But then we have, what about, what about the Essenes? What's their positive? The Essenes, the positive for the Essenes is the Essenes are committed to the text. Like total, absolute commitment to the text. The problem is they're in the desert, so who cares? <laughs> like literally, nobody's going to Qumran. Like it's in the middle of the desert by a poisonous sea. Like nobody cares, right? That's the problem with the Essenes, too isolated. What about the Zealots? Well, here's the positive about the Zealots. They're the only one in this room that's gonna go get something done. Like you might see a Zealot stand up halfway through the service and just leave because they're like, all right, enough already, let's go do it. The problem is, is their methods are often not kingdom methods. They're methods of efficiency and effectiveness. They're often, in this case, violent. What about the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees are completely devoted to God. Like, I really believe in this statement. I wondered if it was an overstatement, and it might be an overstatement, but I don't think it is. There's a lot of people here in the second service. I think there's, one, there's more devotion in one Pharisee than there is in this entire room combined. We, couldn't, we don't have an ounce of the devotion of the Pharisees. We don't have an ounce of their devotion. If we did, look out. Look out. But we don't. The problem is, is they were so devoted that they lacked compassion. Now here's a PS, by the way. The problem with Christian subculture today, American evangelicalism, is we are the, the, the negative of two parties. We're the negative of the, we are cultural Herodians and religious Pharisees. And that is the worst combination. We live with all the idolatry to culture and security and power, and we have no compassion in our religiosity. That's the problem. We should repent of that. But nevertheless, that's a side note. That's a sermon for another day. All right. So why are we talking about that? What is that all about? I thought we exist to connect God, to connect people to God and to each other. Yes. Let's see what Jesus does in Luke chapter 6, Okay. Jesus is going to go out and call his disciples. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, spent the night praying to God. When the morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Here come their names. You ready? Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is also called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So there's the 12 that Jesus calls. Now here's, I want to pause and I want to stop because... How Jesus calls them is incredibly intriguing. Here's the first six. Here's the first six. Simon, Andrew, James, John, Philip, and Bartholomew. Now the first five for sure, and there's a debate about number six, Bartholomew, but the first five came from a fishing village known as Bethsaida. Say Bethsaida. Now Bethsaida was one of the three villages that formed what was known as the religious triangle, and it was the heart of Phariseeville. The first five or six disciples that Jesus calls are from the Pharisee worldview. Jesus operates, by the way, as a Pharisee. Like we always associate Pharisees as the bad guys. We need to stop that. There's more historical context than that, okay? Jesus operated as a Pharisee. He used the Pharisees' methods and he worked for three years in the world of the Pharisees. He did not go to the Essenes and work with the Essenes. He didn't go to Judea and Jerusalem and work with the Sadducees. He did not choose to work with Herodians. He did not work with the Zealots. He chose to work with the Pharisees. That ought to say something to us, Okay? Now, it's good news for all of us religious Pharisees in the world. There's hope for all of us. Like God does want to use us. That, that should be like an amen. Amen. Okay. Here, here, but here's the thing. Simon, Andrew, James, John, Philip are from Bethsaida and their profession is what? 
Fishermen, every day, they get done with their fishing in the morning, they pull their boats into the harbor, they get their catch, they haul their catch onto the shore, they lay their nets out to dry. I'll take you to the harbor, come with me to Israel. And, and they lay their nets on the harbor, and, and then there's a tax collector's booth. And at this booth sits a guy by the name of Matthew. And Matthew sits at the tax collector's booth. And here's what Matthew does every single day. Hey, guys, good to see you again this morning. How about you bring that haul of fish over here, all right? They bring the haul of fish over, and Matthew goes, that'll be two fish for Caesar, one fish for me, one fish for you. That'll be two fish for Caesar, one fish for Herod, one fish for me, one fish for you. That'll be two fish for Caesar, two fish for Herod, one fish for me, and one fish for you. They hate Matthew. Do you, do you understand why tax collector is always used in the gospels? Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. You hated the tax collector. They were an absolute traitor to everything you had come up to build as a Pharisee. Jesus calls six guys. I picture them getting out of the boat, high-fiving each other. Yeah, the rabbi called us to follow him. Way to go, Philip. Put it here. Andrew, yeah. Give me some skin. And then, and then they walk. I'm not sure if they did that. And then... And then they walk past the tax collector's booth and I picture them like, no catch today, Matthew, ha, sucker. And Jesus goes, hey, Matthew, you're with us. And they go, excuse me? Because you see, the next three names are names that seem to imply they're coming from a Herodian worldview. They're Greek in origin. If you're Pharisees, you do not name your children Greek names. I mean, that's an overstatement, but you get the idea. There's a good reason to assume these are they hate Matthew. But then look at what he calls Simon, who was the zealot. And Judah, Judah, Ishkariot. Say Judah. Ish, Kariot. Ish means man. Judah, man from Kariot. Kariot was a zealot compound. So Jesus calls two zealots. Those two zealots took an oath to kill people like Matthew. These guys hate each other. Like, I'm not kidding. They hate each other. Do you realize why these 12 guys are always arguing about who's the greatest? This isn't some stupid Sunday school like Peter standing up, I figured it out, ladies and gentlemen, I'm the greatest. And then Andrew's like, no, no, Peter, we figured this out last night, I was the greatest. They're having an argument about whose worldview is the right worldview. Sound familiar? This is a group of like MAGA hat Trump supporter with democratic socialists at the same table. Now you're the only, the only service to not laugh for two minutes at that. <laughs> and I'm almost glad because I didn't say that to be funny. I feel like maybe you guys are tracking with me. I'm not kidding. Does that make sense? Like Jesus called these guys. Do you realize the night that Jesus goes to die they're having what we call the Last Supper. And you know what those 12 guys do? They argue about who's the greatest. After three years, if I'm Jesus, I'm going, this did not work. God, they didn't get it. The night that he's betrayed, the night that he goes to be crucified, they're arguing. He has to interrupt their argument to say, guys, I got to do something because I die tonight section out that night, it's the next night, but you get the idea. Jesus has to interrupt their argument with like, do this in remembrance of me. And they're like, oh, hurry up, Rabbi, because I'm talking about socialism over here. 
They're just like you and me. Like the night that he's crucified, they're like, they got, like part of them have swords. They're like, is this the night we take the kingdom? We got our swords. If I'm Jesus, I give up. And I'm like, this did not work. And I hightail it out of there. But he doesn't. You know what he does? He prays. He goes out to the garden that night and he prays a prayer on the night that he goes to die. And his prayer has three parts. I don't have time to read through all of it. I want to touch on the last part, but I want to go through all three. Here we go. The first part of his prayer, it's in your notes. It's also in your Bible. Spoiler alert, John 17. It's in there. You can read it every day this week and you ought to. Three parts to his prayer. The night he goes to die. The night he just interrupted his disciples about who is the greatest. The night, the night that they were like on their smartphones slinging stupid videos at each other's Facebook walls. Not kidding. That night, Jesus is like goes away, like during the Passover, they're like, well, check this video out. And that night he goes away to pray. He prays for three things. The first thing he prays for is himself because I'm sure he's feeling it. He's like, I have come here and I have done everything you sent me to do. I have finished the work. I have finished the work, God, that you sent me to do. Help me finish it today. So he prays for himself. The next group of people he prays for are the 12. He, he prays for the 12. That same group of stupid disciples. And I don't mean that, but I'm sure that's how he felt. They just don't get it. The ignorant, self-centered, he prays for them. And he prays that they would be one. Like that's, what, that's what he prays that night. You know what I want? I want them to be one, and I want them to go live out the thing. that I want them to go be different. He, he's, he prays for that they would be sanctified, sanctified by the truth. He prays that they would go out and be different in the world. And the one thing he says is the, like the only like, okay, different how? Like the only implication he gives is that I want them to be together. And then on the night that he goes to die, he closes his prayer praying for, do you know who? You and me. And, and I want to find it and I want to read it. My, my prayer is not for them alone. Who is the them? The disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me. That all of them may be one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you. May they be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus says, that's how the world will know. There's something about this radical fellowship that this group of people are gonna have together that when the world looks at it, the only way to explain it is Jesus. When Jesus prays for unity, I wonder if he's praying for uniformity. I wonder if he's praying that we'll all come to the same political persuasion. I wonder if he's praying that we'll like all have the same theology and we'll all agree on the same textbook. I mean, obviously the Bible. I wasn't talking about the Bible. I mean, you, I, no, because that's not unity. That's just uniformity. And we all know that. 
Jesus is not praying that the zealots become Herodians or that the Pharisees become Sadducees. Jesus is praying that the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the zealots, the Essenes, all these people he's chosen to follow him would all be one. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. He's serious about this, guys. This is what he prays when he goes to die. This is the one thing that's on his heart before he gives up his life. That we would be connected in a way that is so unique. And just read the rest of the prayer. He doesn't stop. He just keeps praying for the same thing. God, I want them to be one. I want them to be one. I want them to be one. Like one of the things that bugs me about the whole home group discussion is like we go try home groups and then we get done and we like come back and we're like, ah, I didn't really like them. They were weird. <laughs> yep, that's the idea. I went there and there was like three people that I really liked, but there was two weird ones and one guy I really didn't like. He really offended me. Yeah, that's what Jesus prayed for. He didn't pray that we would all find some affinity-based group where we all listen to the same music. We have such a great time. We go on trips together and all that wonderful stuff. The world look at that and be like, yeah, it's just like any other club. There's nothing unique about that. There's no gospel in that. Like, there, there's somebody in this room today that I love dearly. You probably, half of you know him. His name's Joe Harrison. Joe Harrison and I could not be more different. I love Joe, and Joe loves me. And Joe has made me over the last three years a better follower of Jesus. Guys, I don't agree with much of any opinion that Joe has. <laughs> but we have something bigger than our opinions. Do you hear me? In Christ, we are for each other. And if we stop looking at all the things we disagree about, we actually find we have a lot of things that we're on the same mission for, and why wouldn't we in Christ? That is the fellowship. When the world sees that, for the love of all things holy and sacred, would you look at your Facebook wall? I say that every time I get up here, but gosh dang it. You get free real estate to tell the world whatever you want to tell them. I just, golly, my goodness. We are so hurtful. We are Herodians. Oops. No, don't look at that. I came up here uh, for prayer a couple weeks ago. I hate doing that. Where I'm, a, I'm one of the pastors. I'm not supposed to need to pray. I'm supposed to do the pray and not be prayed for. But man, my spirit, I was having a hard time a few weeks ago. I came up to Big Brian Brutzman because if anybody's going to pray for me, it's going to be him. Hmm. And I said, I need you to pray for my heart. That's all I told him. I was struggle. Man, I was struggling with this idea. I just had so many things that I was right about and so many things I was frustrated about because everybody else was wrong and I just wanted to have. Uh, I, it's crazy, God may have actually answered prayer. It's crazy, like my heart's been changed. I'm not perfect, I'm just, I've, these last couple weeks have been better. But man, would we, would we, would we pray together that, 
that that would be the thing that Jesus would do in our life, that we would pursue that kind of, and I'm not talking about a mushy middle where we don't have any convictions and everything goes. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not, no, not at all what I'm talking about. It's not like Joe Harrison and I are any less con, like convicted of our opinions. We are, we are convinced and we are passionate. We have something that transcends that. You know, it worked. It worked. Like, what happened in the early church? Why did the early church work? Why were people in the Bible saying, Jesus is going to come back within this generation? It wasn't like some tricky play on like some weird thing. Like, they actually believed that was gonna happen. Why? Because the Roman Empire was crumbling under the weight of a movement that was challenging the status quo. They ignored social status. They ignored class. They ignored Roman law when it tore down. They didn't quote Romans 13, hadn't been written yet. That was a joke, okay. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't do any of that. Like they were like, no, I'm, for, I'm gonna love all people and you're not gonna tell me anything else. And Rome came after this group of people It was that group of people that were like, these people aren't patriots. These people don't follow the rules. These people are a danger to society. They're the ones that need to be kept out. They're the ones that have to have the travel ban. Like that's where they landed. And there was this huge argument because they were no different than you and I today. And they all argued and there was legal court proceedings in a Roman world, looks different than our world, but it was the same kind of idea. One group arguing one thing. And then there was another group that argued for the Christians. One of, the, one of the epistles that was written to argue for the Christians ended up in one of the 12 writings that we refer to as the early church fathers. It's called the Epistle of Diognetus. And guys, it worked. I don't know what happened, but when the Holy Spirit, we're preaching a sermon on that coming up. When the, yeah, thank you. When the Holy Spirit entered this group of 12 guys, they somehow got it. And they did it. And it blew the world away. Watch. For the Christians are distinguished from each other men neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own nor employ a peculiar form of speech nor lead a life which is marked by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they like some proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines, Lord that it might be so. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. I read that fast. Here's what that says. They don't look any different on the outside. They look like anybody else. And yet there's something that blew the world away. What was it? They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land to them is as their native country and every land of their birth as a, native, as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They, they obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all men. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and they repay the insult with honor. 
They do good, yet they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened unto life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners, persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. They did it. They did it, and it blew the world away. And for those in power, it threatened everything that they stood on and stood for, and they tried to eradicate it. It worked. It was the power of the gospel. And then something happened. We became the powerful ones, and that's a whole other sermon, but you get the idea. It worked. It worked. Why, why do we believe that we exist to connect people to God and to each other? Because I believe that it's through people like Joe Harrison that I work out my own salvation through the help of God. Because I believe it's in people that are not like me that I actually become the whole person that God wanted me to be. That is radical fellowship. Am I making any sense? That's good, because we need to go to the table. So if our servers wanna go back to service the Lord's Supper, uh, that'd be great. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we have an open table. And what that means is if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you are family, and you celebrate it with us. Just hold on to the bread, hold on to the juice, and we're going to take it together here in a moment because of everything we've been preaching about. While I do that, I've got some questions I want to go through. These are questions for your for your home group, these are questions for your accountability group, these are questions for your family, questions around the dinner table, questions for the ride home. These are questions for yourself and your prayer journal. Like use them however you wanna use them, but let God work through some of these questions. It may even be horrible questions. Just use it as a starting place. Questions, to be in Jesus's posse. I like that phrase, Jesus's posse. Meant to be committed to the other. I don't know who the other is for you. There are a lot of different others in this room. For, what, for this person, it's the other is that group of people. And for this person, the other is that group of people. And for that person back there, the, I don't care who the other is. To be in Jesus' posse meant to be committed to the other. Would you be able to be in Jesus' posse today? 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for the next three years, could you walk along that, a person who believed in that ideology? that political persuasion, that theological. Could you do that? Because that's what Jesus was trying to teach his followers. What about this? Are you in radical fellowship with people who you do not agree with? Have you intentionally found places where you have relationships with people, you, you have intentionally built relationships with people that are so radically different than you, but you also know that in Christ, you are on mission together and you have more in common than you have apart. Because if the risen Christ can't transcend your political differences, your theological convictions, something is backwards. Do you have a place where you have intentionally built relationships with people that you cannot stand because you believe they are fellow image bearers of God? If we haven't, it, it's called an echo chamber. It's called just living in a place where you have a bunch of voices that all say the same thing that you say and you all go, wow, we're so brilliant. 
and the world goes, I, I don't see Jesus there. Uh, question, does your personal fellowship testify to the very character and nature of God? If people were to look at the folks that you hang out with, if people were to look at the folks that you hang out with, would they look at it and they'd say, I see God in that because it's the only way I could explain why you would hang out with them. Because it makes no sense why you would have fellowship with that group of people. A lot of people that I went to school with that got trained to go into ministry have long since given up on the church and tried to start their own things. And I, Marty, why are you still hanging with the church? Because I believe the church makes me better. I believe the church makes me better. Do all of us that love the church hang out with people who don't love the church because they'll make you better too? Um, Marty, why, why did you say it that way? It was, that's actually the problem. You're just helping the other side because in Christ, I'm not worried about sides because in Christ, I think we all have something to say and we're all saying it kind of poorly. So if we all work together, we might actually say something. I just thought of that. That was good. Somebody play that back. Okay. The last one is not a question, so we had to qualify it on the slide. It's not a question. If you struggle with these things, a home group is a great place to start this kind of connection. I'm assuming it's not the only way that God's ever built connection into the church. I'm assuming it's not the only answer to this question. I'm assuming we haven't figured out like the only one. It's just a good, it's a stinking good place to start. I went through my best friends that I've had here on the Palouse the other day. I can think of like four or five best friends, all but one of them. You know where I met them? Home group. And did I stay with that home group for all eight? No, I didn't. And I've come and I've gone and I've done all kinds of things and life happens. But it's also where I've made some of my deepest, most meaningful connections. Even with people I don't even like. <laughs> Thank you. All you are laughing, that's you. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, listen. We hold in our hands bread and juice. I cannot imagine what it was like that night for Jesus to interrupt their arguments. Hey, hey guys, can you just shut up for one second about that meme? Can, can you just stop talking for just, just, hey, 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 I've got something to say. Tonight I go to die. I picture Bartholomew, I don't know why him, over in the corner like, okay, hurry up. I want to finish my conversation. Hold on, as soon as he's done. And Jesus stops and he's like, guys, I, I give my body for you, remember me. I give my blood for you, remember me. And somehow it worked because thousands of years later, we still are sitting here with bread and juice, remembering something more transcendent than our personal opinions. And if there was hope for those 12 guys that night, there's hope for you and me, I promise. The same Holy Spirit that lived in them lives in us. So there's hope. That night, Jesus took a piece of bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body given for you. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. And that same night, he took a cup he passed amongst his disciples. He said, this is my blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember in the midst of everything else, Jesus. God, as we close in prayer today, I pray 
God, I, I just essentially pray that we would remember your prayer. As we close in prayer here, may we remember your ultimate closing prayer in your earthly ministry. You prayed too. And the one thing that out of everything you could have been concerned about, out of everything that you could have prayed for, you prayed in spite of all our diversity that we would have unity. We would have unity in that diversity. God, God I, I, I pray we would remember the thing that mattered most to you in that moment. And then would we live in a way that honored your prayer request? Would we live in a way where we see your prayers realized and recognized? God, we love you. We pray all this today in the name of the resurrected Christ. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.